expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Hello. And also in studio with us today is economist correspondent Jane Rickards. Jane. Good evening, Keith. Now, today on the show, we're talking more Thai trip tidbits, international relations on the high seas, and we'll be ending things out discussing the life and work of longtime human rights activist Lynn Miles, who passed away this Monday. But first on the show, uh, the day is here. It has arrived as we speak, as this is being broadcast into your homes and cars. The KMT's presidential primary poll is taking place. Pollsters are calling up Taiwan's electorate and hearing what they have to say about Deputy Legislative Speaker Hong Shouju. And as we've mentioned before, she is the only candidate taking part in the primary. Uh, To get the nomination, she needs to garner a 30% approval rating. And if she doesn't get it, the party's center uh, may simply draft a candidate to run. So those are the stakes that we have right now. Uh, We will have the results Sunday morning. So hypothetically, uh, we could know the KMT's candidate for the 2016 presidential election before the weekend is through. And uh, these voters that are getting polled, they have just a little bit more uh, to base their decision on now because uh, this Wednesday, Speaker Hong delivered a campaign presentation arranged by the KMT Central Standing Committee. Uh, Gavin, what did we learn at that presentation? Well, we learned that Hong wants to sign a peace treaty with China, or a peace agreement, she called it. Let's not, call it a, let's not jump the gun there and call it a peace treaty. A peace agreement with China. And she also wanted to take care of the underprivileged, she called them, of society. And she said she wanted to give the underprivileged and the people four gives. These gives being giving people confidence, happiness, hope and convenience. And uh, what stood out to you, Jane? Um, again, as Gavin mentioned, it's the peace treaty. I'm mm. just wondering how that will go down with the electorate. And mm. to outsiders, it seems like sort of a fairly an offence. Yeah, yeah, but you know, given the sunflower movement and the backlash mm-hmm. against cross-strait relations, it would be interesting mm-hmm. to see how that goes down. Of course, my question, like I said when I was talking there earlier, about would it be an agreement or a treaty? I mean, of course, a treaty is slightly different just to an agreement. If you look at the long-winded argument Mm -hmm. there, a treaty would be like, China, if you sign it, we want all your missiles to be moved way away from Taiwan. An agreement could be like, okay, we won't mess with you. Mm. She also made it pretty clear that uh, she is somewhat pro-nuclear energy. Uh, She she decried the move away from nuclear energy that had been made recently. Uh, and she also has had some pretty uh, harsh words, I would say, for the DPP and I guess essentially accused them of uh, moving towards independence, which is uh, something that she is clearly not in favor of. So those are the kind of the two, perhaps we could say, planks that she is uh, presenting. Now, of course, uh, how this primary poll is to be conducted has been the subject of hot debate within the KMT, with the home camp pushing for relatively favorable rules and others that are less eager to see her take up the candidacy for the party, uh, pushing for less favorable rules. Uh, Here's what they landed on. It's going to be two questions that uh, voters are going to be asked. The first question is just a, do you support Hong question? The second question is, 
in a race between Tsai and Hong, DPP chairwoman Tsai Ing-wen, uh, who would you vote for? And so that's seen as a less favorable question for her because as she performed less favorably when being stacked up against uh, Tsai Ing-wen. Those two questions are going to be averaged out. So it's going to be 50-50 down the middle, uh, a little bit of each. Uh, so based on the rules that they've come up with, Jane, uh, how do we expect this to turn out on Sunday? Um, look, I expect it to go quite favorably for Hong. I think she's probably going to scrape through or do better. Now, the reason why I say this is I spoke to the KMT yesterday and for um, the support ratings poll, that is the question, do you support Hung or not? They're only polling KMT supporters. So there'll be a screening question, do you support the KMT or not? And only KMT supporters will be asked this question. And I think that narrows the range considerably. It's not just asking the average person, you're asking people who support the KMT. And I don't have how many... I don't have figures on how many people support the Deep Blue. I don't know whether it's 30% or not, but there is a faction in the KMT which likes her. So they're obviously going to come out in favour at at least. So if she makes it through this poll, uh, is that it? Is she going to be the candidate? I think Eric Jew has been fairly clear that um, they're going to stick to the rules, and he said on the record that if she get averages above thirty percent of the polls, she'll be the candidate. Yes, really, no backing away from that at this point. No, I don't think so. And the Liberty Times, of course, had, an, had a polled its readers this week, and of course, the Liberty Times is not a pan blue newspaper. We'll just add that one in there. It's rather a pan green newspaper. In its poll of its readers, they polled Tong with getting a thirty point seven four five percent support rating, which of course just just eats just, over the just line. Tips are over the line, but in the, in the two polls, it put her at a twenty four point one nine percent rating in the poll against the DPP Tsai Ing Wen, and it gave her a thirty seven point three percent support rating in the just the personal do you support Hong poll. But I, I think I think this poll at the Liberty Times is slight, I think the numbers are too low. I think she'll poll at least. Between thirty five and forty percent. There you go. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Look, I agree with Gavin on that. I, I think she'll do better than what people expect, and I think Gavin's figures are sort of in the vicinity, I would say, yeah. And so uh, so what does this mean for the campaign going forward? If we think that uh, we are going to see a stack-up between uh, Tsai Ing-wen and uh, Hong, what, what, what do we expect uh, that to look like? Um, I'm, I don't think it's as bad as what some analysts might think or what the, some people in the Guomindang might think. Um, I think it's more of an interesting race if two women are pitted against each other yeah. and it really stops the DPP from playing the gender card. Mm-hmm. They can't play it. And I think it's better to have someone who really wants to do it rather than someone who's just been dragged in kicking and screaming and has right. no interest. And I agree with a recent Apple Daily editorial that um, she she should be applauded for going forward and being brave enough to do it when all the so-called Camty A-listers and B-listers didn't want to do it. I think it'll also be a very interesting race because Tsai Ing-wen has very broad policies Mm. that her critics even say are much too vague and you have the so-called Kung Shin Tsai label Mm -hmm. sort of in a reference to, I think, water spinach, which sort of has an empty stalk. But anyway. <laughs> you could not have a, a yes. better contrast with Hong. Yes. We, we know yes. what she thinks. Yes. On the other hand, you've got Hong, who's very outspoken and very principled. The interesting thing, though, is that her principles aren't really in line with what the electorate wants. Right. Uh, often unpopular principles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she's really a candidate for a different electorate, like a more China-leaning electorate. Right. Of course, the question is going to be, who is going to be their deputies? Uh, yeah, do you have any? You just gave us uh, some polling numbers that you're pretty confident about. Do you have any uh, prognostication on that front? I have no idea at all. Of course, I mean, will will she will she get 
Wang Jingping to be her deputy in a sort of an ironic twist of deputy an and boss, twist. really, wouldn't it? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait till uh, after Sunday. Yes. We're going to find out a lot. Well, speaking of DPP chairwoman Tsai Ing-wen, her campaign is well uh, underway. She recently wrapped up a trip to the U.S., and uh, it's being hailed, I think, uh, universally, it might be safe to say, as a success. We're hearing that from uh, pundits around the island, from the Thai campaign itself, and uh, also from the U.S. Uh, so last week, the big question that we were raising on the show was, would the Obama administration once again signal its disapproval of Thai's campaign as it did in the run-up to 2012? Uh, well, I think it's pretty clear that uh, we did not see that this time around. In fact, uh, the U.S. extended a number of diplomatic courtesies that uh, have not been granted before. Uh, for example, uh, she had held a meeting in the U.S. White House and the U.S. State Department headquarters. Uh, these are two firsts for Taiwanese presidential candidates. So uh, upgraded treatment, I think, is uh, what we saw. The question is, uh, what's what's behind that? Why do we think that the U.S. Uh, made those moves, Jane? Well, in my personal opinion, I think much of this has very little to do with Taiwan and has mm. everything to do with US-China relations at the time. Um, they're increasing tensions over China's land reclamation in the South China Sea and converting submerged reefs into artificial islands. And in particular, I thought that if you look at the Tsai Ing-wen's visit to the State Department, that's nothing substantial. It's not really achieving right. anything. It's just purely symbolic. Mm-hmm. And that's what really made me think that the US is just trying to irritate China mm. because there's no substance. It's just like the substance is the meeting, the, the right. venues. Just, the venues uh, are the substance. Yes. Right. Uh, it's all yeah. optics. Of course, it didn't, really need, it didn't really need the venues to upset China because China was upset by the trip anyway. And, of course, the ambassador to the America from China got rather outspoken, mm. jumped up and stamped his feet like a schoolchild, one could say, and demanded that Tsai reiterate her support for the 1992 consensus. And then he demanded to know what she meant by keeping the status quo. And uh, why are you campaigning for these foreigners after all? And why are you talking to foreigners and not us? Right, right. Uh, yeah, so uh, what, what, what did you take away from all those comments that China made, Jane? When China said it wants Tsai Ing-wen to expand on her idea of the status quo, I think that China is taking a, still taking a wait-and-see attitude. Um, China, isn't, China sort of said – first China said something which really offended nearly everyone in Taiwan. Mm. They said that Tsai's Washington trip was like a job interview and she should right. instead and seek the approval of China's 1.3 billion people. Right. And if you look, there was a backlash in Taiwan that extended to the KMT. Like, the KMT spoke up very strongly against it. And after that, China's comments were much calmer, and they sort of asked her just to explain the status quo. And I take that to mean that China hasn't written off Tsai Ing-wen completely. They still want her to come out and say she supports some idea of one China or the 1992 consensus. Mm. And I've been speaking to analysts about that, and they're expecting them China to put more pressure on Tsai Ing-wen as we come closer to the election to explain her position. But basically, China is walking a tightrope because if it if the pressure's too slack, well, Taiwan might get the idea that it can vote for independence or vote mm-hmm. for Tsai. But if it gets too harsh, it'll face a backlash. So it's almost, it's, it's almost a matter of signaling to the electorate that mm. uh, independence is not a path that uh, would be a safe one to go down at this point. Exactly, but they can't do it in such a way that you're mm. going to provoke outrage comments from the likes of the KMT and other sort of deep blue political groups. Now, that's an interesting point that you were just making because I think, uh, well, if you listen to uh, uh, Speaker Hong, at least, uh, her assumption is that the uh, DPP, you know, they say 
uh, status quo. But when they say status quo, they mean moving towards independence. Uh, but what you're saying is that China thinks that there's actually a possibility that when they say status quo, they could mean moving more towards normalized relations, uh, more in line with what they're looking for. I don't think China thinks Tsai Ing-wen could mean that. I think they mean Tsai, if they put enough pressure subtly, Tsai Ing-wen might change mm-hmm. what she means by status quo to accept one China. That's China's hope. Right. It probably won't happen. But I think from these comments, they're leaving the door open and they haven't written off that possibility. Mm-hmm. So they're giving Tsai Ing-wen room to sort of move towards China if she wants to. Mm. Of course, what will be interesting – sorry, Keith – what will be interesting is when it, whether any of the two candidates go to China prior to the election. I mean, there have been calls. I mean, I think it was the China Times yes, last I week. Yes, I saw that. Ran an editorial that said, oh, Hong should go to China. This was immediately after Tsai Ing-wen came back from America. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it will be interesting whether the DPP send any heavyweights to China in the coming months. Mm. And what would the optics be on, on, on that? Do you think that would help a campaign at this point? Um, I think generally it wouldn't, but um, it depends how you play it. Um, if the electorate becomes really concerned that Tsai Ing-wen can't handle relations with China, I think at this point point that isn't much of a possibility. I think the electorate in the wake of the Sunflower Movement is very much concerned with recovering its sort of Taiwan identity and Taiwan culture and they, they're they fed up with the cross-strait deals because they think they only benefit the rich and so on and so forth. So I don't think that would happen but for if the political climate changed in such a way that managing relations with China became important, I think a clever KMT candidate, if they handled it well, it could possibly give a good impression. But generally, I think it wouldn't help. Mm. Now, I know that I know that you said that uh, this trip is a lot less about Thai than it was about Taiwan-U.S. relations. Mm. But we did uh, hear from mm. one former U.S. Mm. official uh, that Thai did not. He's charging that Thai did not fully respond to concerns raised by U.S. officials about cross-strait policy, and uh, that she also kind of sidestepped the whole 1992 consensus issue. Uh, so you think that it's it's likely that the U.S. would be comfortable with uh, this level of ambiguity? Um, I think comfortable is not the right word. It's, I think whether the word is satisfied. Mm-hmm. And I think at the moment they're satisfied. All right. Well, uh, it's time to take a quick break now, which means that we have spent no less than half the show on campaign issues. Half! But we will be coming back in just a moment with lots of other good stuff not on campaign issues, so do stick around. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. And as promised, we are moving away from presidential politics. And in fact, for this next story, we'll be leaving Taiwan shores entirely and heading out for the dangerous and fraught waters of the East and South China Seas uh, as territorial disputes there continue to heat up. And what brings us back to these waters? Well, Taiwan announced this week that it is upping its presence Uh, Last Saturday, Taiwan's Coast Guard commissioned its biggest ship for duty, uh, yet those are two 3,000-ton patrol vessels. Uh, One of the patrol ships will be deployed in the South China Sea. The other is being sent to the East China Sea. And uh, so these, Gavin, these are Coast Guard ships, but uh, they're pretty pretty big fellas. Well, they're Coast Guard cutters, basically. But, I mean, when you think of a Coast Guard ship, you think of a a ship maybe with a bunch of chaps on it in orange jumpsuits. Of course, these are ships with chaps on in orange jumpsuits, only they have 40mm and 20mm guns. 
which you know that they're 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 fighting ships no i mean not warships but you know they're capable of laying down serious fire should they need to and uh, we also heard this week that they are capable of uh, docking with the port that's expected to be built on Taiping, Taiping Island. Because these are 3,000-ton vessels, and, of course, the port there will be capable of taking 3,000-ton vessels. Yes, the Elan and the Kaohsiung. That's the names of the ships. Oh, nice. Uh, and so, uh, based on all that, what do, we, what do we think that these might be used for? Well, obviously, they're going to be used for upping Taiwan's presence in certain areas of the East and South China Sea, where there, of course, been trouble recently. Most recently in the east, in the South China Sea, rather, with the Philippines, I believe. There's been a bit of few incidents in the past few weeks with the Philippines and local fishing boats. Right, and uh, so uh, what you're talking about, of course, is uh, disputes with the Philippines over fishing rights in that area. Uh, and it did look like we were going to see some progress on that front with a meeting between Taiwan and the Philippine officials uh, on fishery policy scheduled for next week. Uh, but now, uh, Gavin, uh, turning it back to you, uh, the fate of that meeting seems like it might be up in the air at this point. I think it might be fairer to say, Keith, it might have gone out to sea, basically, uh-uh. because, of course, the disputes have led to concern, well, not concern, reports, shall we say, from officials that next week's talks have been postponed due to recent incidents in the South China Sea with Philippine Coast Guard authorities. And uh, right, so there was actually a recent incident that uh, we believe might be behind uh, this uh, postponement. Well, there's been several recent. It was one yesterday. There Thursday. was one yesterday. Yes, yeah. yesterday, yesterday evening well. at one a.m. They, they, yeah. seem, they seem to happen once a week. A Taiwan fishing boat gets caught down there, allegedly trespassing and operating right. in Philippine waters. Uh, so I think the one yesterday said that they were just passing through. I think the brother of the captain said they were passing through. Right. Yeah. So that's like walking into a shop and stealing something and saying, "I was just walking through the shop." Yeah. Right. Yeah, questionable. Right. And so going back to these fisheries agreements, what were they hoping to accomplish there? Well, my understanding is that they're hoping to reach an agreement similar to the agreement Taiwan reached with Japan, where they would be able to fish in overlapping territories and not interfere with each other. Mm. And I I believe that's the aim. And obviously these incidents have caused tension and made it more difficult for the two sides to sort of amicably come to some arrangement. There's policing. They want proper policing of the area. Mm. So the policing means that, you know, okay, you can stop and search a ship, mm-hmm. but we don't want you towing, our, towing one of our ships to your port. Right. You search it, fair enough, you let it go. Do do we have a sense, I mean, when, when one of these incidents happens, does the Philippines see this as, you know, Taiwan's responsibility, Taiwan's fault, or, or is it more seen as just individual fishermen who are might, maybe straying further than they should? How, how much is this really upping tensions between Taiwan and the Philippines? Well, I don't think tensions between Taiwan and the Philippines can be upped more than they were a couple of years. Was it last year or the year before? No, it was in 2013. Two yeah. years ago. Sorry, sorry, yes. that's a bad thing to forget. 2013, when, of course, the fisherman was shot by a Philippine right. Coast Guard. And that's, of course, when Thai is basically to do with um, waters in the economic zones of Taiwan and the Philippines hit basically rock bottom. Mm. And while they've slightly got better with talk by both Manila and Taipei of a, a, a tactile agreement to police the area... These seizures of Taiwan ships every week for the past month or so obviously aren't helping matters. Right. And it's certainly not helping to smooth the waters over, as we could say there. And uh, speaking of uh, these tensions, uh, let's just you know kind of zoom out for a second and look at the broader issue here of uh, the broader territorial dis- uh, disagreement that's between many countries, including China. Uh, how, how do these you know more localized spats between Taiwan and the Philippines, how does that play into the broader story we're seeing in the South China Sea? 
I'm inclined to think that um, these sort of spats with the Philippines and before Taiwan and Japan signed the fishing agreement, sort of, there used to be spats with Japan too. I, I tend to think they're superficial. Um, I'm inclined to think that um, in terms of the South China Sea, Taiwan would be neutral or as particularly if, or particularly saying when wins the election, I think it's more US leaning. I, th- I think that... Um, the opposition Democratic Progressive Party likes to portray Maying Zhou as someone who cozies up to China, which is true. But as, as far as um, the South China Sea, particularly the South China Sea um, Peace Initiative, I don't see it as particularly leaning towards China. Mm. So I, I actually think Taiwan Taiwan gives a very neutral stance. But I think if you really dig, like dig several feet under the ground, I actually think that the US and ASEAN countries tend to be more... Taiwan's allies than China. Mm. And uh, and these fishery disputes probably don't make a big difference on that front. It would be your read. Um, my read of the fishery disputes is that the fact that they're moving towards an agreement sh- actually shows that Taiwan's actually moving closer to Japan and the Philippines through de facto agreements that don't involve politics or sovereignty or military ties. So these fishing agreements are actually a way to sort of strengthen ties in the face of um, pressure from China. Because if, if, you know, if you've got solid agreements with Japan and the Philippines, that sort of reinforces ties between all the three islands. Mm. That's my interpretation based on analysts I've spoken to. Yeah, going back to the agreements with yes. the Philippines, apparently there, there, was, there, was some, there were some reports that, that people were expecting it to be signed next week. Um, yes, I actually heard from some Western diplomatic sources that they're expecting it to be signed, but I checked the sort of local media and I didn't sort of see any reports there, but there were some expectations. Yeah, I think they were still going to, I believe, I think they were going to finalise. There were some sort of issues, some issues vis-a-vis the rights to actually stop and search. So we say to use mm. a police term rather than a naval term. Right. Stop and search issues were still up for discussion. Mm-hmm. And so these continuing, you know... These little incidents that we see where a, a Taiwanese boat is detained or a, a Philippines boat is detained, uh, do you think that that has any chance to derail these talks or, or do you see them as pretty inevitable? Well, you talk, well, it depends what you mean by derail the talks. I think it can definitely slow down the process and slow mm-hmm. down the process considerably, especially if there's a big backlash in the public in Taiwan or the Philippines. I ultimately don't think it will derail the talks. Mm. The simple reason I really think China's in the background and a big part of it is um, stepping up ties to counterbalance China. All right. Well, we are going to observe that as it unfolds. Uh, But for now, we're going to move to our last story of today, uh, and we'll be discussing the life and work of human rights and social activist Lynn Miles, who sadly succumbed to a bout with cancer Monday morning at the age of 72. Uh, Miles first came uh, from the U.S. to Taiwan in 1962 to study Chinese and got very involved in the burgeoning democracy movement. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a chance to speak earlier with someone who has contributed a lot to human rights work in Taiwan herself and uh, worked for a long time with Lynn Miles. Uh, That is Linda Arago, perhaps best known for her work at Formosa Magazine. And Linda told me that Lynn's work was responsible uh, in large part for laying the groundwork that helped expose some of the human rights abuses going on in Taiwan at that time, and also raising the international profile of the emerging democratic movement. His most important role was uh, from about 1971 to 1979, when it really was dangerous to collect and to transmit human rights material. 
And at that time, the dissidents in Taiwan, or whatever movement you might say, or pre-movement, uh, rather was helpless. It was rather it was quite helpless in the face of the governmental repression. Uh, but the government, especially as the U.S. was moving towards relations with relations with China, was quite sensitive to uh, international opinion and international information. So in uh, 1971, uh, Lin began setting up his network in uh, Osaka, a secret network uh, together with a Japanese woman, Miyake Kyoko, to uh, collect and uh, bring human rights information out of Taiwan. So he was the center of a network of uh, sending people into Taiwan, collecting information, and then sending, uh, translating and sending on reports to Amnesty International. All right, so once again, that was Linda Arago. Uh, Gavin, you also knew Lynn Miles yourself, is that right? Yeah, I knew him more socially, though. Yeah. If you see what I mean. Not a, not a human no, rights no, no, activist I, I, yourself. I, I, obviously, I knew he was a human rights activist, but I, I knew him more socially, and we worked together once many, many years ago. And, of course, he had lots of friends, not just me. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. He was a popular guy. A popular guy. Let's let's talk more seriously about Lin, though, rather than him just being a popular guy. Of course, he also knew the current DPP chairwoman and 2016 president of Hopeful Tsai Ing-wen, who, of course, wrote on her Facebook page after he died that what was it? Lin was a witness of an era, mm. basically giving him high praise. And she also said that before she left for America recently, that Lin told her that she must safeguard Taiwanese people and must not let them be harmed. Right. And of course, Sherman Durr, I believe, Jane. Yes, um, Sherman Durr wrote on Facebook that when the vast majority of people chose to be silent during Taiwan's terror period, he came forward. Right. And he's generally been remembered by a lot of political luminaries in Taiwan. Right. And so definitely a, a figure that's remembered quite well by, you know, some of the people at the, the highest echelons of the DPP. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, now, uh, bringing people up to date, uh, a lot of the stuff that we were just talking about a second ago uh, took place in the 70s. Uh, but uh, he was actually kicked out of Taiwan for a time for his work, but came back here uh, after 1996, and he received permanent residency in 2006 for uh, what was seen as uh, special contributions to the nation. He uh, taught for a number of years at Furen Catholic University, which is not too far from our station over here. And uh, he was also involved in the Sunflower Movement, right, Gavin? He was, he was actually one of the 119 that got indicted. He was actually indicted. Yeah. The, I believe this was to do with the, the cabinet building. Right, the, the, the break, executive the, building, the, yeah. The, well, the, the cabinet building, the executive UN building. Yeah, he was one of, those, he was one of two foreigners indicted. Right. So definitely very much involved in Taiwan's politics all, all, all the way up until last year. And going back to my conversation with Linda Arago, uh, she told me, you know, just kind of summing up that Perhaps his final contribution to Taiwan was going out with good cheer. When he realized he had a very short time to live, he said, let's party. <laughs> and so that was the uh, May 30th Peace Fest out in the hills here in Shuding. And uh, I think this is a very good example who's, uh, of a person who faces the end and yet still thinks of how to be together with his friends in a very lively way. And uh, I think this is uh, the best last legacy he can have. And I would say that this ability to uh, face death, I think, was very much honed, very much developed in the human rights work. That is, by facing difficult questions and life and death situations, or at least knowing about them over a long period of time, you become very tough and also somewhat transcendent. 
All right. So uh, we're going to leave it on that note and uh, actually wrap up our show for today. You can leave your thoughts on this week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you're listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studios, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Rickards. Jane. Thanks, Keith. And Gavin Phipps. Thank you as well. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.